Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. Morning, everybody. Woo, baby, that's me. I'm going to... uh... Derek always does this before his sermons, so I think it'll help me too. I'm just gonna set those right there. I didn't look at a single one. I'm just kidding, that's not true. What? I gotta face this. Oh, okay, here you go. Is this better? Can you see those now? Is that better? Okay, thank you. Um, hey everybody, uh, welcome. Good to see you guys. Uh, I feel like I should be saying announcements, but not doing that right now. Elizabeth already did it. Good job, Elizabeth. Thank you. Um, I'm Nate. Uh, I'm one of the staff members here at CCF. Um, I keep some of the lights on. I'm not going to claim that I keep them all on, but I keep some of them on at least. Um, also, before I get going, uh, a number of you may have these little First Corinthians um, journal books, right? We were giving them out uh, a few weeks ago at the beginning of the semester. Um, We gave all the ones out that we had, um, but good news. Uh, We have a few more. Derek ordered some more. So if you don't uh, have one, this is just a journal. It just has um, the text on the left side of each page of 1 Corinthians uh, and then some like dotted blank lines on the right that you can kind of journal in. Uh, If you're interested in getting one of those and you did not get one at the beginning of the semester, um, you can talk to Derek. uh, Come find Derek at the end of service and he can hook you up with one. Cool? Good? Okay. Um, okay, so usually when speaking, uh, I guess if I do it once a semester, sometimes you show pictures of your family. I'm not going to do that. Um, I'm going to do this instead. Uh, I love spring break a lot, um, and so I'm going to show some pictures from, actually, uh, I should say my actual titles first. First Corinthians 5, um, or Incest is Bad, Sermon Over, that was easy, or Oi, this ain't rugby. Or confrontation, I thought you said look the other way like nothing happened, Tation. Um, no, common, common confusion. Um, anyway, so instead of showing you some pictures of my family, I'm going to show you some pictures of previous spring breaks. All these spring breaks I was a student on, um, so I just found some random pictures from my phone or from... Uh, from Facebook, I guess. Um, so you can go ahead to the first one. Um, I've already shown this one. This was my freshman year in Glory to New Mexico. We built this cool water slide tower thing. Uh, I worked with one of my good friends, Danny Ibrahim. Um, it was, it was pretty awesome. It was beautiful. Um, and now we get to see like the finished product, uh, afterwards. That was really cool. Um, that's kind of where I got plugged into CCF. Oh, you can go. You're good. Um, the next one, this is... Uh, 2015, this was at Tanglewood Christian Camp in Texas. Um, Guys, it rained all week. It literally rained all week. Um, We were stinky. We were, it was, uh, but we bonded. It was actually one of my favorite ones just because like uh, we were all in these like tight quarters and stuff. I don't know. It was, it was a cool bonding experience. This was, I did a lot of leaf raking that time. Um, A bunch of my friends there. It's one of my best friends, Christian, there on the right. Um, This was my uh, friend Josh Simons, Hannah Simons, his older brother, uh, wrestling Derek uh, at the camp. Um, Derek won. I mean, I I love Josh. Josh threw up afterwards. So (laughs) Derek won. Um, It it was a good time. Um, Next one. This is New Life Ranch, uh, Flint Valley, Oklahoma. Um, This is where we went two years ago. Um, that's the iconic picture. It's on, it's on the shirt. Uh, Derek has it on a shirt. It was, 
there was this like crazy hayride they used to do like way up the mountain. Um, Derek was, uh, yep, that's it. That's, there's nothing else to say. There's Alan Smith on the back and actually, is that Carly Kleinsman? It is Carly, okay, on there as well. Um, and then that's Sharon the Shed. Um, that's what we built that week. Um, we named it Sharon. Uh, it was pretty cool, um, and they still use it. Actually, a couple years ago, it's like an equipment area where they store lots of sports-related equipment at the camp, so that's cool. And then I have a couple more pictures from this from when we thought we were really cool. Um, this is my posse and I standing in front of this giant bonfire, and then we took all these like profile weird pictures. Um, I thought it was cool. I was really channeling my inner dark Nate, I guess. Whatever. Um, yeah, it was a giant bonfire, like the biggest one I've ever seen, but it was really awesome. It was in this huge field. Um, next, we have Alabama. We have the recreation of the Last Supper centered around Spencer Chipley. Um, it, was, it was pretty awesome. We built benches all week, um, and just uh, getting to hang out with um, that crew uh, was a lot of fun, um, and we made a lot of progress. I don't remember how many we built. I should have checked it. That picture was on the fridge forever. It was like in the fridge in the CCF house. That's Ehi. Um, and I'm just giving him some tailoring measurements. Um, okay, the next last one. This is Gloria, New Mexico. This is 2018. Um, this I was working with Spencer and Ehi again. It was awesome. I got to take two. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, but we went back there, and there's Julie and I standing on a rook, standing on a big rook. Um, so yeah, that's where we were dating at that time. Um, but I have a lot of very fond memories of spring break. I love it every year. Um, there's always something that I can call back to. Um, it is truly my favorite thing we do. Um, so please consider going. Um, it's a trip full of meaningful work, relationship building, uh, lots of awesome memories such as these, um, and some pretty darn good food. Our kitchen crew always does such an awesome job. Um, so I implore you just to give it a shot. If you are on the fence, just give it a shot and see what happens. Um, so that's, that's my plug for spring break. Um, okay, so now on to sermon times. Um, if you have been with us this semester, you know that we have been going through the series on the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, if you haven't, welcome. We're going through 1 Corinthians. Um, the Bible Project portrays the book of 1 Corinthians um, as a sort of like series of essays. Um, each one of those addressing a specific problem or like a series of problems um, that are reported to be going on at the church in Corinth. Um, actually, for most, I assume all, like I shouldn't say all, but at least for most of the books of the Bible, they have like a little panel illustration thing that kind of like goes through the whole um, the whole book, which is kind of cool and interesting. Um, and so I have that um, up here. This is the one for First Corinthians. Um, and so there's, there's a lot going on right there. Um, I'm not going to point out a ton on it. But we've heard Derek um, and Reed and Brooke talk a little bit about the first four chapters, um, centering a lot on um, the divisions that were kind of in the church. Uh, I'm following Apollos. I'm following Paul. Look at all my awesome wisdom. Um, it was a bit like a popularity contest. Um, so he was addressing that in the first four chapters. Um, now we are moving on and focusing on chapter five. Um, it's a new topic of discussion, so five through seven are dealing with a lot of um, sexual immorality within the church. Um, and so uh, it still seems, though, to center on some of the same core issues that we've seen up to this point in the first four chapters. Um, so chapter five, is a, it's a bit of a doozy. Um, so let's just uh, jump into um, the first two verses here. It says this. 
Nice. Um, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So Paul's main topic of conversation in this chapter seems to stem from an instance of incestual relations. Uh, the little heading above like the NIV version um, says, dealing with the case of incest. I should say that I intentionally chose this chapter. Like I had a choice and I chose this chapter. Um, this was my doing. I looked at it and I thought, huh, incest. That seems like something we can all agree is probably a bad thing. Um, here's the sermon. Don't sleep with your in-laws. There's some correlation to the Grinch. Go in peace. That's it. There you go. All done. Easy. Um, but there is certainly more to sort through um, as we go a little further. And it's true that it's not a common problem we face today. Um, there are a lot of things we debate um, in our society and in the church when it comes to sexuality in general. But incest is not really one of those. Um, ironically enough, according to Paul, neither did the pagans, um, as we can see in these verses here. Um, they didn't debate it, and yet, here we are. Nevertheless, I think if you just read over the heading, if you just read, dealing with a case of incest, you could be tempted to just tune it out, skip over it. Um, this doesn't really apply to us. With that thought in mind, um, I think it's worth pausing and noting something about the Bible and specifically about the letters um, that we're reading here. Uh, when reading, we need to pay attention to the audience of the book or the letter. Um, here, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. The letter is not addressed to 21st century America. Shocker, I know. Um, hear me, that does not mean there is nothing to be gleaned from the letter. Far from it. However, I think that sometimes um, we think the whole Bible is written to us. Uh, maybe it's a bit of our like individualistic arrogance that Brooke was talking about, um, that the world revolves around us. I mean, we're hardwired to see the world only from our own perspective, so I guess that makes sense. Um, it's a little harsh, but maybe that is valid. In actuality, especially in the case of letters, we're third-party observers, really. Um, Julie's mom, so Julie is my wife, um, Julie's mom, Karen, uh, Julie's visiting her family uh, back home this weekend. Her mom, Karen, has like a collection of letters that uh, are between um, Julie's grandfather and her great-grandmother, so the grandfather and his mom. Um, and we've looked through them. There's like a big binder of them. Um, so Julie and I can sit down and we can read those letters and we can certainly learn quite a bit um, about those two individuals from reading the letters. We can gather insights into their personalities, what was going on in their lives at the time the letters were written, maybe that they, what they agreed on and what they didn't at different points. However, to say that we totally understand them just completely by reading the letters would be a bit ridiculous. Surely, there are inside jokes that they don't understand or that we don't understand. Um, sayings or idioms that were commonplace at the time that don't exist today. And a culture of the period that we just don't really identify with. If someone said someone is pushing up daisies, one could assume that maybe they were just a gardener. Or if I said that hits different, which I really hate that, by the way. Um, have you perhaps found a new form of combat? I don't know. 
Do you think people nearly 2,000 years from now are going to know what you mean when you say no cap or drip or goat or Karen? <laughs> she may be a Karen, but her drip is goaded, no cap. Like, what the heck do you think someone would think that means? I barely understand it. I can't even believe that I even said it. Like, I, I absolutely hate that. I need to get some Listerine or something. Um, like, I know I'm an old man in a 29-year-old body, but in reality, those are all real words with real definitions um, that are very different than what you mean when you say them in those contexts. So, so is the case in reading 1 Corinthians and other chunks of the Bible, for that matter. Each book exists within a context, has an audience, a goal in writing to that audience, and a culture that we're not a part of. So, in keeping with the hope for establishing some context, here's a very brief look at the culture of the city of Corinth. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, just for time's sake. Um, but it's located in Greece. It's on or near an isthmus. You know what an isthmus is? Anybody? Somebody knows. A water thing, correct, Paul. It is a water-ish thing. Uh, it's like a narrow strip of land, like between two big bodies of water, like seas or something. Um, therefore, so you can see right there's the isthmus of Corinth. It's between these um, two big bodies of water. Um, so Corinth was unique because it could have a harbor on both sides, which harbors were pretty important back in the day. Um, so this unique location brought it a lot of wealth to the city, um, as well as like a wide swath of different cultures. Um, Greek and Roman influence was substantial. Um, it wasn't the big olive, like, they, like Phil says in Hercules, um, but it was at least a big olive. Um, you really need to watch that movie, Emily Halas. It's a good movie. I'm not calling you out or anything. Um, even that little bit of context about the city of Corinth gives us further understanding as to some of the issues we've already addressed through the first four chapters, um, these cultural influences, especially Greek, praised wisdom and rhetoric and individual expression, to name a few. They can also easily lead to a common theme that I think we've seen so far in 1 Corinthians, and one I think we can identify with today. Um, arrogance, or being puffed up, as we've called it um, in recent weeks. So think back to for just a minute, let's do a little review um, of what we talked about. Derek talked to us about the arrogance of the people in Corinth in regards to their knowledge. They had a confidence in their understanding of God, much in the same way we grasp for knowledge and understanding in attempt to get a handle on God and what's going on around us. Reed talked about the division within the church in Corinth, a sort of like obstinate confidence in particular viewpoints centering around who is right, who is wrong, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul, I follow the one guy selling the sundials on the street. Um, we identify with this strife with our numerous religious denominations and our political parties and our platforms. Um, we try so hard to be right when the real foundation to building a platform should be Jesus and the love he exhibited. One of humility, not of arrogance. Finally, Brooke talked about the arrogance of individuality that existed among the church. Um, she compared this to our desire for our 15 minutes of fame to be praised for the gifts that we've received rather than using them as a way to serve others. Now, we come to chapter five, and Paul is still speaking to and about an arrogant people, um, as you can see um, in the verse there. This time the arrogance exists in the context of sexual immorality. That, again, is not even tolerated among the pagans. In a way, it seems as if the church in Corinth is not, is, or has elevated itself above any sort of moral code. 
If you're familiar with the New Testament, you remember that Paul spends time in a number of different places talking about justification through faith and freedom in Christ. And certainly these things are true, but the Corinthians seem to have confused what that actually means. They seem to have adopted a haughty attitude where anything goes. If Christ has set us free from sin, then we can do what we want. No parents, no rules. But this certainly isn't what that means. Uh, take a look at what Paul says in Romans uh, 6 here. What shall we say then? Shall we go on in sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who had died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into, a death, into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from dead through the glory of the Father, we may, too, we may live a new life. Two may live a new life. Holy cow. You got it. It's up there. Or this in Galatians 5. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Each of these passages have their own context. We just talked about that. Um, but it seems clear that this freedom in Christ, Paul discusses, is a freedom to love and serve one another, to humbly sacrifice for one another in, a way, in the way that Jesus did, not to simply indulge to the heart's content. I think Paul comes at this idea uh, later in chapter 5, so I'm kind of skipping the middle section, and I'll come back to it. Um, so this is the end um, of chapter 5. This is verses 9 through 13, which I need to read out of this. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So these last few verses of the chapter actually caught my attention from the beginning. I like, feel like I've just been drawn to these specific ones um, as a whole. He says not to judge uh, those outside the church, but instead to look within it, um, to take a look in the mirror, if you will. And if you think about it, this idea makes sense. I mean, if we take a rugby official and we try to put them into officiating an NFL game um, using the rugby rule book, um, if we did that, every time Patrick Mahomes throws a freaking dime of a pass tonight um, that may or may not be caught by a wide open receiver, it's fine. But every time that happens, he'd be flagged for an illegal forward pass. In case you're, uh, you aren't sure, rugby, you can only pass backwards. You can't pass forward. Similarly, if we as Christians claim to follow Jesus, we're striving to model our lives and priorities after his, Therefore, we can look at ourselves and our fellow Christians and try to evaluate if we're following that model. But we can't look to the world that is not following Jesus and then judge him by his rule book. Um, instead, Paul urges us to look within the church, within ourselves, um, to fix what is going on there first. In the paraphrased words of Jesus himself, 
Why would we point out the speck in someone else's eye without first removing the log in our own? And to be clear, the language that Jesus actually uses there is the word brothers, your brother's eye, when he's referring to the speck. He seems to be saying that we need to be doing quite a bit of searching within ourselves before we even approach a brother or sister within the body. An already high bar is set for evaluating others within the church, let alone looking to those outside the church. And yes, I know the word judgment in general is one that carries lots of baggage, opinions, interpretations, connotations, etc., all of those things. And we can definitely talk about those. But I think the point here is this. If we are to be the light of the world, then our lights need to clearly illuminate the face and life of Jesus so that the world can see him through us. It reminds me of like the left versus right-handed power thing. You guys heard of this? You've been around CCF, you've probably heard it at some point or another. Um, the right-handed power is the power that the world is most familiar with. It takes charge through aggression. Um, it asserts its own way, its dominance. It rules with a closed fist. Left-handed power is much the opposite. It is much more synonymous with an aroma, something that subtly attracts you toward it with an open hand. It seems much closer to the light Jesus was talking about, one that for the world illuminates and points toward him. This seems to be more of Paul's approach here. Certainly Paul has some bold words, and we're going to look at those in just a few minutes earlier in this chapter. But to be honest, many of them are directed at those within the church rather than outside of it. Does that mean that we're held to a different standard? Yes, it does. <laughs> Um, when I was younger, I always wondered what it would be like to be one of Jesus's actual brothers. Um, for some reason, in my head, I always pictured a kickball game. I don't know. I was in, I was in elementary school, play kickball, whatever. Um, I always pictured a kickball game. One of Jesus's brothers like smokes a ball out into the outfield. Um, awesome, good for you. Get some clapping. Um, then Jesus comes up with his Shelby Holst-like rocket for a leg, and she kicks the ball into orbit, or he kicks the ball into orbit. Ah, your brother's way better than you at playing the harp? Cool, mine is the Messiah. Try living up to that one. That's a silly illustration, um, but cut me some slack. I was like nine years old for that matter. Um, in reality, though, if, we're able to, if we are to be modeling our lives after Christ, then that makes Christ our standard. Our standard is the way in which Christ lived, died, and resurrected, and the way in which his spirit continues to work in the world today. We may not be required to follow all the Levitical laws of Torah, but we should be following the one who embodied the spirit that was behind them from the beginning. And that's not easy. It's impossible, in fact. And that is where the humility comes in, the humility that seems to be missing from the Corinthian church in these first few chapters. Continually, we have to search within ourselves and then in our church bodies to see how we can better illuminate and mimic Christ. This sort of setting apart or sanctification, as you might have heard it called, takes time and effort. Um, when I worked at Glorietta years ago, um, so after going to the camp for spring break, ended up working there for a summer. And Reed was our speaker for the summer session. Um, and even after nine years later, I still remember this image of sanctification that sticks with me. Reed talked about it like reupholstering a couch. You ever reupholstered a couch? Me neither. Um, but according to um, 
the, uh, the process here. To take off the old upholstery, at first it comes off in large swaths, big pieces. Once this is done, the pieces being removed get smaller and smaller. With all the nooks and the crannies and the staples in the couch, there are so many little pieces that it's nearly impossible to remove them all. Even when the church receives the new upholstery, or even when the couch receives the new upholstery, you'll still find pieces of the old. As we continually learn and grow and attempt to put on the upholstery of Christ, if you will, we will still find pieces of the old flesh or upholstery that needs to be addressed. This process is ongoing and it needs help from the community. Um, that help can come through encouragement, um, accountability, and sometimes, as we're about to see in the last middle chunk of chapter five, some tough conversations. Hear this from Paul speaking about the man who is participating in incest. I'm just going to read it from here. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, but the leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So one time, uh, Julie and I were watching the movie Soul. You're familiar with this movie? It's a pretty good movie. Um, we were watching with Leah Lackey um, and Meredith and Tyler Ussery. Some of you know those people. Um, we were watching it in our apartment, and so in our apartment, our apartment's pretty small. Um, we're in the living room, and our TV, I'm sitting here, our TV's right here, and we have our couch facing it directly, so it was like Julie and I and Leah on the couch. And then uh, over here on the side, uh, there's a futon, and Tyler and Mare are sitting on that futon. And Mare is like the one with the worst angle at seeing the television. Um, and so we asked her, like, Mare, can you, can you see the TV okay? And she's like, oh, yeah, no, totally fine. I'm like, looks like a pretty bad angle. Are you sure you can see the TV? She's like, oh, yeah, no, this is totally fine. So we watched the movie. It was good. Whatever, we in the night. Um, a couple of years later, a couple of years later, um, we were FaceTiming Mare and Tyler, uh, just talking to them. They live in Texas now. And uh, we were somehow that movie came up in conversation. And we're like, oh, yeah, you remember that part from the movie? And Mare's like, what movie? What are you talking about? Soul, the movie we watched in my apartment together. She's like, okay, I have a confession. I could not see a single bit of that movie. I sat there the whole time and just listened to it, but I have no idea what was happening. <laughs> and if you know Mare, this is like, this is hilarious, and this is like very accurate. I, I asked her permission to share this story. Um, she, uh, I love her, but um, she, she has multiple stories like that. Um, and the funny thing is, like, I'm the exact same way in a lot of respects. Um, in the vast majority of uh, circumstances, I avoid conflict, inconveniencing others, and confrontation like the plague. Um, you charge me a bit too much for my, for my restaurant bill? No worries. I'm just supporting local businesses. It's fine. <laughs> Round up to the nearest dollar to donate to literally anything? Sign me up. <laughs> sure thing. Need a kidney? I only need one. That's fine. When I asked Mare if I could share that story, I also asked her if she could recall specific instances in which my non-confrontational uh, nature showed through. This was her response. Um, right here. Every day of your life, mate. 
She meant to say Nate, but I kind of like uh, hearing it in like an Australian accent. It's pretty fun. Um, <laughs> like if you even remember back to the beginning of this very sermon, I picked this chapter because I knew that incest was something we could all agree on. <laughs> I have always been a people pleaser and I know it. My natural inclination is to keep everyone happy, even if that means I have to bend over backwards to make it happen. It is something I know that I need to work on. I mean, certainly this isn't always a bad thing. Um, in a world riddled with divisiveness, someone who wants to keep the peace can be a good thing. But keeping the peace doesn't mean being steamrolled or being simply a passive onlooker who sees but always chooses to remain silent. If you want an example, see Jesus in the Gospels, or listen to Derek's sermons talking about militant nonviolence. Um, there's a number of them over the years. Sometimes a difficult conversation needs to be had. In fact, there are certainly many cases, perhaps even the vast majority, where avoiding addressing the issue leads to far more harm than actually addressing it. Think of it like a wound that if you leave it untreated, um, it becomes infected, leading to collateral damage to all the tissues that surround it. Or perhaps like a cancer that begins to spread after being left to its own devices. Making peace is not simply avoiding conflict, um, it's often standing within it. Even though we can recognize this to be true, that doesn't make it easy. You guys probably know that. I think that's why verse five makes me cringe. Um, surely you didn't miss the jarring language. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Wowzer. I chose this. <clears throat> Firstly, we probably need to address what this likely does and doesn't mean. In my brain, the initial image for me and maybe for you um, is literally just handing someone over to the dude with the pointy horns and saying, he's beyond our help, he's all yours. Um, that image may certainly have some validity to it, um, but I don't think it's the most accurate portrayal. According to N.T. Wright, Paul sees the world outside the church as the sphere in which the Satan has unfettered power. Satan is the accuser. Um, in the courtroom, he's pointing out every shred of evidence of our sin. It is a world of accusation. In essence, then, Paul is insisting the man to be released from the fellowship of the church to the world of accusation outside for the destruction of the flesh. The word used for flesh in this instance is the Greek word sarx. Sounds like a cool dragon. Um, but sarx refers to the sinful state of human beings. Some sources call it the animal nature. Putting it all together, it's not a casting out for the destruction of the person as a whole, but rather for the destruction of the sarx, the sinful nature of the flesh. Still, sending someone out of the body seems pretty harsh. After all, aren't we supposed to be gracious, welcoming, forgiving? Yes. I don't think this passage holds a contrary viewpoint to that. Still, there are specific rare times where this kind of drastic action is the right thing to do. Sin is destructive. Um, I like this chunk from Kenneth Bailey. It's one of those books there. Um, I think he does a better job of elaborating than I would, so here's him. Paul knew that if there were no boundaries for sexual behavior, any form of social bonding as a community would be impossible. If the man who was sleeping with his stepmother attended church, those present would be traumatized by his presence. 
Every man and woman in the congregation would wonder who is next. What is he thinking about? If we sit behind him, his presence will distract us from worship. If we sit in front of him, is he looking at my wife? Members will avoid meetings when they know he will be present. This is not a case of negative attitude should change. If incest is accepted, what about polygamy with its inevitable demeaning of women? Bestiality will no longer become unthinkable. Yes, they are under grace and no longer under the law. But what does that even mean? Shall we go on in sinning so that may, grace may increase? By no means. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. The sin being committed here is affecting the community. The bit of leaven threatens to infect the whole batch, if you will. The cancer threatens to grow. And I don't think this is the case where the individual, or the church for that matter, was ignorant of his missteps. Paul says they are arrogant about an issue that the pagans won't tolerate. He knows what he's doing. As mentioned earlier, if Christ is the standard we're striving for, then we will no doubt continually fall short. If we looked to oust someone at the first sign of trouble, then no one would remain. But he who is without sin cast the first stone. Humility and grace must permeate through the community, not arrogance. Discussions need to take place. Prayers need to be prayed. I can imagine both of these steps of mediation involving the incestuous man in this passage. I think they took place on multiple occasions. And yet the man remained arrogant rather than mournful, puffed up rather than repentant. Casting out should be a rare occurrence. It is a last resort. Nevertheless, Paul says here that there may be a point where to prevent damage and destruction to the body, someone needs to be let loose. This man seems to have reached that point. Um, I think of like the, the wound. We are called to love God and one another above all else, but that does not always look like people pleasing or much to my chagrin being the nice guy. But I do think it is important to note the rest of the verse. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that is so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It is not simply an exile and a good riddance. See you later. The hope is still for redemption and restoration, not condemnation. Sometimes we are so stubborn that we need to reach our own conclusion, even if someone else can see where it's going and has warned us. Sometimes we have to hit rock bottom before we are jarred awake. I have never been a parent, but I can imagine there are times when the child insists his or her own way with such persistence that the only way for the realization to occur is for them to go their own way. The story of the prodigal son again sticks out in my head. Um, certainly in this instant, the son was not asked to leave. He left on his own accord. Nonetheless, after taking his share of the inheritance out into the world, he squanders it. He truly does hit rock bottom if you remember the story. He decides to return to his father's house. His father then meets him with, then meets his decision of repentance with open arms. The hope should always be for eventual repentance, reconciliation, and restoration. What happens if we avoid confrontation when it is necessary? As we are told constantly, bottling up everything just isn't good for you. I mean, we hear that all the time. 
Um, an initial tension that arises from being wronged in some way can develop into resentment. This resentment may manifest, manifest itself through anger or avoidance. Saying nothing to the one who wronged us can lead to others experiencing the same offense. Isn't turning a blind eye practically aiding and abetting the problem? Sharing the resentment with others can create divisive factions within the body as people close to each party involved take sides. The body becomes fractured. Think of it like a pot of boiling water. When the pot is first introduced to the heat, a problem, only a few small bubbles form in the bottom. If you leave it unchecked, the bubbles grow larger. Eventually, the pot is a volatile rolling boil. I've seen this happen in families. Um, we have seen this happen on a large scale in churches where scandals boil over and fracture not only the congregation of that specific church, but they send out shockwaves into the capital C church. Avoiding the tough conversations may be the easiest decision in the moment, but the eventual collateral damage can be much worse than that one conversation. Granted, there are appropriate ways to handle it. In much the same way that we need to take personal stock before looking to others, we must also look inside ourselves first. Are we seeking to understand or just to be understood? Did we jump to conclusions and misinterpret something? Are we looking to restore a relationship or just to make a statement and point a finger? Once we have taken time in prayer and reflection ourselves, then we can go to the other person with humility while standing firm in the hope of the restoration of the body. Um, so before I kind of conclude here, I just want to take a minute to, for you guys to just think and ask yourselves um, what sort of conversations God may be calling you to instigate. Um, maybe you're feeling resentment from someone who wronged you. Maybe you are the one who wronged someone else and you're nervous to put yourself out there in an effort of reconciliation. Maybe you're a people pleaser like me and you can see a problem, but you worry about what people might think of you if you bring it up. Maybe you're worried about a relationship changing. There's a lot of different things. Um, so just gonna take a minute um, just in silence here. Um, and so I, I just invite you to uh, ask God if there's a conversation that you need to have um, in your life. I know that might be scary because you might actually get an answer. You might actually think of something. Um, but if we're to model ourselves after Christ, um, then we must love one another, even if that looks like saying some difficult words. So take just um, a minute now. Um, Jot it down if you have something that you think of, um, but just take a second to think. If something does come to mind or something did come to mind, um, I invite you to prayerfully consider following through with it. Um, we as a staff are also here if you want help discerning if something needs addressed and how. In the meantime, may we learn from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. May we continue to engage with scriptures and conversations that make us uncomfortable. And may we embrace our freedom not by indulging in the desires of the flesh, 
but by humbly illuminating and pointing toward the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you uh, for today. We thank you for your son um, and the example uh, that he gives us. And even though it is impossible to imitate it exactly, um, help us as we uh, just tear off old pieces of the upholstery uh, and try to uh, make ourselves look more like Christ. Help us to illuminate his face to the world around us. Um, and when tough conversations need to happen, um, give us the words um, to handle them well, um, to think and to seek restoration um, in the end. Uh, Lord, just help us as we uh, continue to wrestle with um, the rest of 1 Corinthians um, with difficult passages. Um, it is good to wrestle with these things. Uh, be with us now as we worship you. Uh, continue to pray.